This is Legacy Battle. Make sure you hit like and subscribe, whatever you're listening on. I'm Mike Wyoming's Creative Legacy Battle. My panelists tonight, Ball State uh, University, Paul Havocott, from Steelers Nation South, Rollo Coffin, from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Dion Reed. We're joined here tonight by, well, I'm going to give this away a little bit. Here's, here's the university right there. So that he's representing. Go Dukes, baby. All right. So current assistant basketball coach with Duquesne. Played in the NBA with the Detroit Pistons, and then he's got four seasons in the Australian NBL. Um, he spent four years at Eastern Michigan. He was a shooting guard out there and just a, a phenomenal player, especially his senior year. If you want to check out his stats, they are available there on Google. Um, so we, we got Coach Charles Thomas here. Charles, thanks for coming on. We appreciate you being here. I oh, appreciate you having me. Thanks for that great introduction, too. Awesome. So as always, we're going to have a Q&A after our debate uh, with, with Coach here. And uh, tonight's debate is going to be the most memorable March Madness shot. And uh, we're all going to be representing one. And we're going to start out tonight with Rollo. So I'm going to set this up. <clears throat> so it was 1982, uh, one seed Georgetown versus one seed North Carolina. Uh, this was a game that was full of college stars and future NBA draft picks and future Hall of Famers. There were 20 players who were drafted, wound up drafted into the NBA, uh, two future number one overall picks, and three future Hall of Famers that were playing in this game. Uh, What made this game special was how hotly contested it was. Uh, The second half, the largest lead by any team was four points, and that was Georgetown with a 12-minute mark. Uh, There were 13 lead changes, nine in the second half. The Hoyas took their um, their final shot, their final lead on a sleepy Floyd jumper with about 57 seconds to go. But with All-American James Worthy uh, and Sam Perkins on the team, it was a, a skinny freshman by the name of Mike Jordan who would sink the game-winning shot with 15 seconds to go. It would give Dean Smith his first national championship after being in six uh, previous Final Four appearances. It was also the first time that a one seed had won the chip since seeding was introduced in 1979. And that skinny freshman would go on to be one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And that was when they started his legacy, was that shot. So, Coach, with uh, Michael Jordan, this was kind of his coming out party to the nation. Uh, a lot of people, you know, weren't familiar with Mike Jordan because it wasn't even Michael yet uh, up to that point. So, I mean, what what were your thoughts on on that shot and and what it did for Jordan's college career moving forward? Man, I mean, what it did for his college career moving forward is, you know, his his history in itself. I mean, he became one of the greatest players of all time, if not right now, still the greatest player of all time. Um, But that shot, I kind of wanted Georgetown to win, to be honest. You know, I I, I like John Thompson. Um, Sleepy Floyd, I was a fan of his too. But, you know, that kind of made me realize who Mike was. And that was a phenomenal shot. And the best thing about that is he never hesitated. He caught the ball, he stepped right into it and and let it fly. And that just goes to show like having confidence at any level, at any time, no matter how old you are, I mean, you can get things done. It was a great shot. Um, I felt bad for Fred Brown and threw the ball away at the end, which is why North Carolina ended up winning that game. Like I, I, I put myself in his shoes, like probably a lot of people did. And man, if you didn't feel bad for that guy, you don't have a heart. But like you said, it propelled Mike Jordan to be a Michael Jordan and the rest about him is really history. 
Do you think that maybe this shot is a little more remembered than what it should be because it was Michael Jordan? Like, if it wasn't Michael Jordan, are we maybe even talking about this one tonight? I, I think so. I mean, they no one talked about the shot like that. It was a big shot. He made it. They win the national championship. But then years later, he becomes who he is. And, yeah, they're always going to go back to that shot. So I, I tend to believe that if he was just a regular player and he wasn't Mike Jordan to turn into Michael Jordan, it would just be another big shot in NCAA history. But because of who it is, now it's one of the greatest shots ever. Excellent. Let's move on to uh, Paul. Okay, I got Christian Leitner, and this is regarded, this this game is regarded by many as one, if not the greatest NCAA tournament game ever. The entire game was close, plus the uh, viewers get a five-minute bonus overtime with this one. So I'm going to skip over the first half because the action's in the second and the overtime, but Duke leads Kentucky 50-45 to at the end of the second half. Kentucky tied the game with 93 uh, tend to get 93 with 33.6 seconds left. Bobby Hurley had a chance to win the game in regulation but missed the shot. And so now we're heading to what basically is like a sports writer's dream here. We're going to overtime. So we're closing in on the moment. And this is actually labeled on Wikipedia as the shot. You know you've accomplished something that's just on there as, as the shot. So the team's trading the leads in overtime. Clock's winding down. Kentucky pulls ahead 98 to 96. Leitner actually just takes over the game. He scores their final six points, giving them a 102-101 lead. It's looking bleak. Kentucky called a timeout, 7.8 seconds left. Sean Woods hit a running one-hander in the lane over Leitner to put Kentucky ahead 103-102 to with 2.1 seconds remaining. So Duke called a timeout, and they drew, drew up a final play where Grant Hill would throw a long pass to Christian at the opposing field, uh, foul line. So he ends up throwing about 79 feet Finds Leitner on the opposite foul line. Leitner dribbles once. I can still remember this in my head because I watched this live with my late uh, dad back then. But he dribbled once to his right, turns back around to his left, shoots a turnaround jumper over Feldhouse. Just before time expires, ball goes to the net, buzzer sounds. Crazy, crazy. Leitner ended up being like a – we just kind of saw this with that Jordan Miller from Miami in the 2023 games, but he was perfect. He was 10 for 10 from the field. One of them was a three-pointer, 10 from 10 from the free throw line. And um, they had actually practiced this play over and over again. It failed prior in the season to Wake Forest because they were guarding him at the uh, Grant Hill at the inbound, but they did not guard him this time. They doubled up on, uh, or at least tried to double up on Leitner. But that's the Christian Leitner shot. Hey, Charles, the first question I got to ask you, why does everyone hate Christian Leitner? I was just thinking that as I'm listening. <laughs> I wanted Duke to lose that game so yeah. bad. You and everybody else. <laughs> it was Bobby and Chris, though. Yeah. Like, I, I know Bobby because I got to coach against him when he was at the University of Buffalo and now the Arizona State's head coach. Only met Christian just, just a few times, so I, don't, I can't really say I know him. But I didn't like Bobby or, or – I like Grant Hill, but didn't like either one of those two. So that shot crushed me. Um, why they didn't guard the inbounds pass? I don't know that either. I mean, Grant tapped into his uh, his dad's football days. Calvin Hill tapped into his days and made it through a strike, even though his dad was a running back, but tapped into the football and made a great pass to Christian. He just made a regular post move from the free throw line and, and like you said, turned and shot it. The most memorable thing for me, though, is not even the shot, which is what it's called, is an old teammate of my, my twin brother, Carl's, when he played for the Cavs, was Antonio Lang just throwing his body in disbelief into on the on the ground right under the basket. 
like what just happened. So to me, people think about that shot, but I know Antonio, so I'm thinking, what were you doing? What were you doing in that moment? Like what made you throw yourself to the ground? But the reason why they hate him, I probably because they're both they're so good. Christian Leitner was a was a hell of a basketball player. Shouldn't time heal some of the wounds, though. They got Grayson Allen and J.J. Reddick since then, so you can hate those guys more than – I think Bobby Hurley's still number four on the all-time hated list, though. Really top five still? <laughs> yeah. I, I got to so. let him know that when I when I see him here at the I figured J.J. Reddick would be number one, but <laughs> – I thought J.J. would be number one, too. But that shot was so great, like, to have the poise that Christian had to just to make the one bounce turn and shoot it. And like he said, he works on that, like, in the post. He works on that in the mid-post. He just shot a regular shot, and he was already nine for nine at that time. I mean, shoot, just, a, again, a confident shot. He worked on a lot, and it was nothing but net. You know, it broke my heart because I won in Kentucky. When Sean Woods, who's a friend of mine, made that runner down the lane, I was like, yeah, Kentucky's got this. And Jamal Mashburn had a monster game, too. But, you know, Chris was like, I got one more for you. You left too much time on the clock. And it's almost like a Larry Bird moment. You leave too much time to a good player, you can lose. And that's what happened. Something that both of you mentioned, uh, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, the importance of that first, that that one dribble that he did to set himself. I, I think that really made the play like more successful, in my opinion, because he was able to make a basketball move before putting the shot up. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's exactly, you're exactly right. Couldn't say it any better. Like he just made a regular basketball play. It was great rhythm for him. When he's warming up, he probably did the same thing. One bounce, turn and shoot. One bounce, turn and shoot. And that's pretty much, even though Feldhouse had a good hand up, that's pretty much all he did when he made that shot. Just a one-bounce turn and shoot. It was a great rhythm shot for him. Excellent. Let's move on to Dion. So no disrespect to Rollo and Paul, but the original <laughs> these shots came five years prior from Leitner. Uh It came from Keith Smart in Indiana. Uh, just to set up the national championship, it was between number one seed Indiana in the Midwest and number two seed Syracuse in the East. But even before that, the final four was epic. Before that, um, Indiana had a victory over number one in the West, UNLV, a 97-93 to victory. Uh, Syracuse had just beaten uh, the Cinderella team that year, Providence, that was led by some guy named Rick Pitino. So even the setup before that was just epic. Uh, then we get to Monday, March 30th, 1987, in the Louisiana Dome in New Orleans. Uh, we have eight uh, future NBA players in the starting lineup. Indiana was favored by four points. But the game was tight from the opening tip-off. Uh, the biggest lead in the game was actually by Syracuse. They went up by five points with just six minutes left in the first half. But even that, the following possession, uh, Steve Alford was able to nail a three to – a good game in closing distance. Uh, every shot counted. Every shot counted, even to the last second. I mean, if you really think about it, there was a buzzer beater for both halves of the game. Um, Indiana was down by uh, two points uh, going into the closing seconds, and Steve Alford, again, just laid a three, laced it right at the buzzer to take the team up by one. Coming back out, we had 13. 13 game time um, possessions in the final 10 minutes of the game. Uh, Smart, who made the shot, really just took over in the second half. 17 of his 21 points come, came in the second half. Um, the legend, his legend status started way before then. Um, but it's actually kind of uh, funny because 
33 seconds left into the game, he actually missed the shot to put the game into time distance. Um, freshman Derek Coleman, who had a phenomenal phenomenal game with 19 rebounds as a freshman in a national championship game, gets the rebound and is fouled. Uh, he went then went on to a one and one, and he actually missed the shot. But prior to that was a smart move by Bob Knight, who decided he wanted to ice the freshman by calling the timeout right before he takes the shot. So as he missed the shot, they take their time going down the court. They really wanted to have an ISO with Steve Alford, but just cannot get the look that they wanted. So Keith Smart then goes across the court, takes the ball, passes in the post, then get the look they wanted, passes it back out, and just takes the matter into his own hands, and nails the shot. And then on the um, following possession with one second left, which was a controversial call at the point, at the time, because uh, they they had some clock management issues. Once they settled that, they passed the ball in. Keith Smart, again, comes up with the interception. Looks like a, a safety out there. Comes up with the interception to seal the game and is named the most outstanding player of the tournament. And there is your original these shots. So this is, uh, this is our OG tonight, I guess. We'll call it that. Charles, uh, you know what? What are your thoughts on that shot and uh, two just uh, epic coaches in this matchup? Oh, the coaches were shoot. I mean, Bob Knight, Jim Beheim. Like, what can you say about those two guys? I mean, the record speaks for themselves. And you know, Coach Beheim had a great career. Just finished with what one thousand fifteen wins in his career, and that's after stripping all those wins from him. He got them back. So, just great coaches, like as you said. Um, again, another game. I was conflicted. Like, I'm from Lansing, Michigan. My guy, D.C., Derek Coleman, I was going for Syracuse. You know, I know D.C., his point guard at high school was my point guard in college. So I had great affinity for Derek, and I thought they had it pulled off. And, you know, ironically, the guy that made your the shot, Keith Smart happened to be when I played in the G League. Um, back in my late 20s, Keith Smart was my head coach. And wow. we talked about that shot all the time. And he said for him, you know, he worked on that particular shot not thinking he was going to make it as a game winner, but it was just a perfect rhythm shot for him once he caught it, took the bounce, and, and rose up and shot in that corner. So he did that a million times just working out. So for him, he just had to get to a spot and raise up and shoot it. Um, again, I was going for Syracuse because of D.C. Um, I wasn't a Steve Offer fan. I didn't hate him, but I wasn't an Offer fan. But I was happy that Steve Smart hit that shot. We wore the exact same number. I wore 23 in college. He wore 23. Um Ironically, he happened to be my coach years later. So, I mean, I'm happy for Keith. And, you know, now he's an assistant coach at the University of Arkansas, associate head coach there. And we actually talked about that when I saw him over this, over this past summer. I said, man, people still talk to you about that shot? He said, yeah, every NCAA tournament, they talk about that shot. So you may be right. It may be that original D shot. Who knows? So our, our final one here tonight before our honorable mentions so we're going to go, this is our most recent shot, and, and you're not going to see it on a lot of the, the best of lists because it is so recent, like the lists, they haven't been updated yet. So 2021, we got the March Madness tournament, of course. we got the number one seed, Gonzaga, taking on UCLA, number 11 seed. Uh, winner of this one goes to the title game. So something you need to remember with all this, though, is that Gonzaga – so they weren't the underdogs, of course, but they were, you know, the number one seed dealing with the pressures that come with a, a possible undefeated season. And that, that makes everything harder, you know, when you're 
you get tight. You feel like you have to be perfect or, you know, you're going to blow it. So we, we go on to this match. Final score ends up being 93-90. Gonzaga gets the win, but let me let me break it down here a little bit. This game was back and forth, uh, you know, in the first half. Um, at the end of the first half, Gonzaga was up one point. Tied at the end of the second half, and, and this is where it gets really good. We move into overtime. So in overtime, Gonzaga takes a, a lead. They get six points uh, either center, I believe. and But UCLA battles back, ties the game with three seconds left uh, in this overtime. So the ball is inbounded to Jalen Suggs um, on the right side. He drives like furiously down to the front court, pulls off a 40-foot jumper. Let me put that in perspective. The three-point line is what NBA in the NBA is 23 feet. So we're talking almost double the, the three-foot the three line here. So rising over UCLA's David Singleton, um, he, he puts the shot, and he didn't call backboard, but it hits the backboard, and it goes in. Um straight you know through the net off the backboard um I, I think this was just an amazing shot and, and what this shot did is is it it added to the legacy uh to the end to the then undefeated Gonzaga team at that time um you know Suggs of course he'd go on to play in, uh, in the NBA he's with Orlando um and you know he's had a, a, a solid start to his career I'm not too bad but um you know, like I said earlier, you're not going to find this on any of the charts yet. It, it, it's too new. But this shot was absolutely amazing. And if you see the height that he got on this jumper to, to shoot over Singleton, just absolutely incredible. Uh, Charles, you know, this is very recent. So, you know, what were your thoughts on this shot? And and Suggs, I, I swear, he must have jumped like eight feet on this shot. Yeah, he, he probably jumped even higher than that when he jumped on it, the scores table cheering his fans. Yeah, the scores table afterwards, yeah. <laughs> but he – uh. That shot, man, you want to call it lucky, right? But after end of every practice, most college practices, they work on 5-4-3-2-1, dribble over half court or shoot it from half court, probably not off the glass, and try to make it. So he probably did that maybe hundreds of times throughout the season. But to do it and pull it off in that situation, to keep your team undefeated, to get down the court and get through those guys, to get that shot off. I mean, I see what you're saying about being one of the best but it's got to, to me, in my opinion, it's got to rest a little bit longer before you call that one of the best shots. But at that moment, I agree with you, though, at that moment, to bank it in, to keep yourself going undefeated, to get to the national championship game, um, even though he lost it to Baylor the next night, I mean, two nights later, I mean, it's crazy. But to me, watching Suggs jump up there, I did that before when we won a, um, just a, a MAC championship game when I was in college. You live for those kind of moments, to jump up there and slap five with everybody and, and get the crowd to love you. So to me, I like that just as much as the shot because the emotion of the game is what it's all about. You see why you know why kids love to play the game. It's not about money. It's not about NILs and all that stuff. It's about the love of the game, and that's exactly what you saw when he hit the shot. So it's more the celebration and what it meant to that team and him afterwards than it was the actual shot itself. So our honorable mentions tonight, we got, and this is a big shot too, and, you know, kind of just missed our, our picks here tonight. Lorenzo Charles, NC State, 1983, uh, the dunk to win the championship. I mean, that, that, that that's a huge shot, um, but it, it is a dunk. So to me, it's not quite as impressive as, as these other shots. But And then uh, Chris Jenkins, 2016, uh, Villanova beats the Tar Heels. Anytime you can beat North Carolina or Duke, that's a great day. So <laughs> there's like another good shot. 
So let's move into our vote, guys. Cannot pick your own. Paul, you're in my upper corner. Who are you taking? I don't know how you don't vote for Christian Leitner here, but that's the everyman shot. You know, it's not it's like some magical Jordan dunk that nobody can replicate. It's like, so, you know, I guess in that theory, I'll do Dion's Keith Smart because that's kind of the – that's kind of close to Leitner, so I'll go with you, Dion. Okay. Uh, Dion, go ahead. Yeah, I I I, I try to let my young young status stick out and be the recent bias, but I don't think you can't you can't choose anything over Leitner. That, that that shot can't be replicated. Okay, Rallo. Uh, can't go with Leitner because I hate him. I hated him. See, that's the only that's the only <laughs> thing people can say if it was somebody other so. than Duke. But keep smart. You know, the the call from Brett Musburger and Billy Packer, two of my favorite college basketball analysts of all time. I just remember the call from that game, and I just remember the shot and him making it at me, my face. So, yeah, he's smart. Okay. So, yeah, um, I mean, Jordan's jumper is as clean as it was. I mean, he would only get better and better and better. Uh, so I, I can't vote for Jordan. But um, between Smart and Leitner, I just – I. I Leitner knocking out Kentucky uh, was a pretty huge moment. And was was that was that for the the second championship or the first championship? Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on that at the moment. I don't remember which one it was for. Like I know it was taken it was for ninety two. Ninety two. So that would have been yeah. the second one. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, we're talking back to back too. There's a lot of pressure on that. So I'm, I'm going to take Leitner. Um, Charles, we come to you. You can pick any of the four, or you can break our tie. Up, up to you. Man, <laughs> I I don't want to go Christian Leitner. I really don't. And Bobby Hurley. Oh. And I love Keith Smart. And that shot was unbelievable in that moment. But really, with 1.5 or 1.2, whatever it was, the poise Christian showed, I I can't believe I'm saying this, but I got to give it to Christian Leitner. <laughs> there you go. That's you guys right there. Look at there, there you Paul. go. I thought I had him. I was reeling him like off the camera. I thought he was, was going to smart. <laughs> so, so the hate for Leitner does not keep him from winning tonight here. So Dude, it's an for... overtime win with less than like yeah. two seconds. It's, it's the greatest Absolutely. shot ever. And he's the biggest guy too. Like all those other guys were guards. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have a yeah. six foot 10, six foot 11 guy making a 17 foot jumper in that situation. Like that's unheard of. Like big guys aren't doing that, really? so you, you, even though we hate him, you got to tip your hat to that to that guy. And the the pass was great too, so you got to yeah. give Grant Hill some Grant. some props as well. But for Christian to make that shot, it's it's hard to go against that one. Well, let's move into our Q and A. Paul, you got the win. You got first question, and then we'll go Dion Rallo me. Oh, I you, I'd be an idiot if I don't ask you about. I looked up the Pistons 91-92 roster to see who you're playing with. You got there a little bit of Rodman, Isaiah Thomas. Pick your poison. You got a good Rodman story. Did you know he was going to turn into such a <laughs> such a figure in the world? I mean, what can you say about this guy? You know what? No, I did not. And like on our on the on our playing round ball one, like I sat across from him like a lot, just picking his brain and just talking. He's a really he was a really normal guy. He only had a couple of tattoos, had some earrings, whatever. But he was really, really super smart and really, really thoughtful. Um, when you talk to him, like way smarter than you would think. 
right? Because everybody sees the worm, this persona that Madonna told him that he better, you know, he better latch on to as he was getting older. Um, but no, he wasn't as crazy as people seem to think. He was just crazy about getting rebounds. And then Isaiah Thomas was the leader that everybody thought he was. Um, Joe Dumars was the most consummate pro that you could ever have and play with. John Sally was the joker that you that that he showed he was. All he, basketball, he told me one day, was his second life. Like, he wanted to just entertain people. Um, the Robin stories, we can't say, but Robin was kind of wild, but he wasn't wearing dresses wild, but let's just leave it at that. Um, I had some good nights with, with Dennis. Um, but the whole team, like the whole team, Bill Lambeer, like he was just as physical. He was just as nasty when you were against him, but he was a joy to play with. Set some really good screens for me. Um, may God rest his soul right now, Orlando Woolridge. He took me under his wing and just made sure um, that I was going to be okay as a rookie. I got $1,000 stole out of my hotel room in, in Oakland. We went to play the Golden State Warriors one day, and I paid him back, but he made sure he took care of me and gave me that 1000 back and said, you know, we got to be, be a little smart on the road, Rook. So, like, those guys took care of me. I was the only rookie on the team, um, and it's something I'll never forget. Just wish my career would last a little bit longer with those guys. But, now that was a that was a great time playing with Detroit Pistons. something, you know, I'll never, ever forget. Yeah, so um, as the game of basketball is constantly evolving, um, how has, well, what has been the biggest adjustment for you uh, as far as coaching? Is it coaching itself, recruiting, or just getting with this new brand of basketball? Man, it's really all three. Because when I first got into coaching, uh, it's way different now. Um, as far as it was more four-on-one in, pass, pass movement, player movement. You know what I mean? It was less playing with the ball. Was more throwing the ball inside and playing inside out, um, and now it's like like everybody wants to go off the dribble, everybody catches it and holds it. It's way more ball screen set, and as far as recruiting now with the transfer portal, you know, recruiting high school kids is not obsolete, but it's harder to do um, because you want to win right now, right? And that's everything wants right now. So, do you fight building your program, or do you want to win right now? If you don't win right now, you may lose your job. There's a couple of coaches that were 25 games over 500 this year in, in three or four years of being a coach, and they lost their job. So it's just – it's changed completely just because of just the times have changed. Um, but the purity of it, I still hold dear to my heart, and that's what I still try to teach to my guys um, or anybody who wants to talk basketball. But if you haven't adapted a little bit, you know, you're not going to be in the coaching game long because it'll pass you by because kids don't want to hear about what happened 30 years ago. You know, they want to they wanna know about what happened five, 30 days ago. Um, so you got to just adapt as a coach. And I think the really, really good coaches, like the guy I worked for, Keith Danbrock, has been able to do that. That's why he has over 500 wins in his career. Problem. <clears throat> so to kind of piggyback off that question, what is um, – just a two-part question. Um, what do you like most about recruiting? <clears throat> and how has NIL affected your ability to recruit um, people that you normally uh, would have recruited? Um, let's go with the NIL first. It's it's made the game really hard, right? Because you don't know if somebody wants to go to your school because of the bag or they want to go to your school because they want to be coached the right way and, and, and develop and be successful that way. So they, they also don't really understand what it is to have an NIL deal. Like you pay taxes on that. So the more money you get, now you're a grown-up. You may be 18 years old. And let's take the guy Nigel Pack from um, from Miami, 
400,000 a year, 800,000 in two years. Like he's paying a lot of taxes on that more than probably all of us in this call. Cause I'm not making 800 grand right now. I don't know that these young kids or their handlers or their people understand that part of it. You're now in a tax bracket that most people aren't in and the IRS will come get you. So people just see the money. I want to go get it, give it to me. But there's so many legal ramifications involved with instead of just getting money in your pocket that you got to be careful. So that kind of makes it a little bit tougher because you have to explain that. And some people don't fully understand or believe what you're saying. They just know some one of the bigger schools gets X amount of dollars to this player. Um, and the biggest thing that I miss about recruiting and what I like about recruiting, I guess that's one more thing than you asked, is the relationships. And I miss genuine relationships because nowadays kids will leave in one year. You know, even if they're playing well, I've seen there's almost 1,100 people in the portal right now and it's not even April. So mm-hmm. building true relationships with people is what I'm about and is what I love about being a college coach and about being a coach in general, about being a father. I love the relationships with, with, with building with young men and helping them reach and attain a goal. Um, but this transfer portal thing, man, um, has changed that part of recruiting. Like I still want to be a relationship guy and I still try to forge my relations with people um, and rely on the people when I'm, that I, the contacts that I have when it comes to recruiting, but it makes it difficult because everything now is almost like a one-year deal. Getting a guy for multiple years is now you've really got something because that, that really happens nowadays. So I would say the relationship building is the biggest thing I love about it. And that's one thing that kind of lacks a little bit because everybody, some people are looking for handouts and some people aren't and just trying to sift your way through that makes it pretty much pretty difficult at times. So let's talk Duquesne here. So this past season, great season for the Dukes, 20 win season. Uh, that's, that's only the third time that Duquesne's won 20 since 1980. So you guys just did a phenomenal coaching job there. You had some really, really good players this year. Jimmy Clark had a nice season. Day Day Grant as well as had a pretty nice season. He put up 15.5 points a game, which isn't too bad. You guys make the CBI. Uh, you know, what What were you guys as a coaching staff expecting of your team going into the season? I mean, we always expect good things. Uh, I think every coaching staff does, but we knew we had something different than the year, the previous year. We weren't that good at all. Um, so we were very optimistic going into the season. If we stayed healthy, like everybody says, we got a chance to surprise some people. And then everybody came in with a chip, chip on their shoulder to be picked 15th overall. <laughs> didn't give us the coaching staff much credit for being good coaches. And it really was a slap in the face to our players. So from minute one, we had a chip on our shoulders and our guys played with that throughout the entire year. We had some bad games yet. Did we lose some games we probably should have won? Yeah. But overall, guys knew they played Duquesne when they played Duquesne and they, they were worried about us. I mean, we had good shooting. We had good ball handlers. We could go inside on you. I mean, at one point we were averaging like 15 threes a game at one point. You, you were nervous when we were coming in, right? You were nervous. But I just think we just, you know, we just shocked a lot of people, but we didn't shock ourselves. We knew if we stayed healthy, we'd be pretty good. So, yeah, we had a good year, but as most coaches would say, we, we weren't completely happy with how it ended. We thought we could have done a little bit better, but very, very optimistic going into the future. The late Chuck Daly, hmm. did you have anything that you took from him that you could use in your coaching career, or did you borrow anything from him? Yeah, just how to be the how to be a professional, how to earn your keep, 
um, and how not to sweat the small stuff. So with him, he let you be a man. Um, he didn't micromanage everybody. He was really, really, really good at managing personalities. And that's why he was so good as an Olympic team coach in 92. Um, but the biggest takeaway I got from him was just earning your keep. You got to come in and shape. It's your job. You got to get extra shots up. It's your job. I'm not here to babysit you. I'm here to coach you. And I think with me, I do the same thing with the guys I coach now. Like they're kids. And I was a kid, I think, at 22 still when I got there. But they're kids who have to be more father-like, mother-like, uncle-like, and, and, and the like, right? But I still try to have that same Chuck Daly approach. Like you earn what you get and you need to work hard for what you get. I'm not giving you a gift. And I have no problem with telling you about yourself. And, and I'm always going to take that with me. That's one of the biggest things I got from Chuck is just earning your keep and, and being true to who you are and just work for what you got to get. And I think if you do that, you have a chance to be successful. And if you don't do that and you cut corners, you may be okay for a second, but it will catch you. And I don't, I, I never, and my mother would, she would hurt me <laughs> to this day if, if I wasn't teaching young men just that because it's bigger than basketball. And I think that's my biggest mantra to, to our young guys when I coach them. Like this game is, is bigger than basketball, but everything you do outside of basketball is going to help you on the court as well. It goes hand in hand. So I, I, I got I got a lot of that from Chuck, but some of that I got from my mother. I got to give her Sharon Thomas some credit. She uh, she taught me and my twin brother along with my father the right way. Good, Dan. Uh, my second question for you, uh, Charles, is um, what was the grind like um, from going or trying to get to the NBA, then going uh, undrafted in the uh, D League or the G League? Um, I'm not sure what it was called back then. It's called the CBA back then. The CBA. Oh, okay, okay. So what was the grind mm -hmm. like going through that and overseas? And what was that like for you? Man, <laughs> if you're not strong mentally, you're quitting. Because mm -hmm. as much as you love the game, the game don't love you back sometimes. Mm -hmm. And for me, after making it right out of college and having to go down to the CBA to try to work my way back, I had two other chances, one with the New Jersey Nets, one with the Milwaukee Bucks, and I didn't make it. And at that time, when I didn't make it that third time, I went overseas and said, I can't do it anymore. Um, age up, man. It'll humble you really quick. So you have to have perseverance, and you have to have strong fortitude through it. And those are overused cliches at times. But if you don't have those, you're not going to make it. And then going overseas isn't easy either. Because if you have a couple bad games, they don't like you, they'll send you home. So you always got to be on your A game. And you always have to make sure you're doing things the right way by people, even in somebody else's country. Because when you do that, they'll understand you're human and you may have a bad game or two. And no matter how much you're getting paid, you're not just going right home, right? But if you go over there like, I'm the American, you guys need me, have a bad game or two. There's another one coming flying in the next day. So the game will humble you as, really, as, as quick as it will give you something great, it'll humble you just as quick. And that's the biggest thing I learned from it after being in the NBA and everybody loving me to, like, everybody forgetting who Charles Thomas was once I wasn't in the NBA anymore, and then working my way back up um, and getting over and, and having the career I wanted to have when I got to Australia in the NBL. It was still crazy over there, too, and they treated it just like the NBA. But I got over there and earned some respect and won a championship my first year, and the rest just took care of itself. I, I, was, a, I was a decorated player. I was a respected player. And that's all you pl I played the game for, somebody respect my grind and what I had to do. Um, but I thought about getting out of it. 
a couple times. Um, but I'm glad I stuck with it. The game gave me a lot of great. As much as it gave me bad, it gave me a lot of great things, too. And I'm very fortunate to have the career I had. Rallo. So you played for my my favorite professional NBA team. So I can't let you out of here without asking you something about your time with the Pistons. So do you remember your first NBA basket? And what was it like stepping on the court for the first time in the NBA? Man, it was so surreal. Um, because I, I was a free agent. No one expected me to make it. Um, and I was playing with, with house money. You know, I had a really great camp and, you know, the, the NBA veterans, I think the first time when I knew I had a chance was I wasn't playing that much. And then John Sally said, why are you complaining? And I said, I'm not being able to show what I can do. And he said, you're still here, aren't you? And at that moment, I was like, yeah, take advantage of still being here and learn as much as you can. So shout out to John Sally, big spider for, for teaching me that. But my first NBA basket, and he he hates it every time I bring it up because he's a he's an assistant, a head assistant coach over at Robert Morris. Mike Isolino, it, it was really on him. And the, I remember the play, and it was 30-plus years ago. It was called Quick Two. And uh, I got a screen first set by Bill Lambeer. The second screen was set by by uh, Dennis Rodman. I came right up the middle, turned and squared up, shot it. We were in Dallas, and it was nothing but net. And I remember the timeout after that. We came to the bench, and, and uh, Chuck Daly – um, before he sat down and started talking, there was a Toyota commercial, which is one of Isaiah Thomas's sponsors. And the, the catchphrase was, Toyota, I love what you do for me. So during the timeout, and this is how stupid I was. I was I, what are you supposed to be this? So I'm just having fun. I tap Isaiah on the shoulder, and I said to Zeke, I said, Zeke, I love what you do for me, man. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And then he looked again, he was like, Oh, no, you didn't just say that because I was talking about the commercial. And at that point there, I think my teammates just had respect for me and just and just took me in because they knew I wasn't afraid of the moment. I was just relaxed in it. And, uh, yeah, man, but that was my first basket. Mike, if you, if you ever listen to this, I'm sorry. But it was on Mike Isolino, the associate head coach at Robert Morris at Dallas on the road. And, yeah, it was, it was, it was a good time for me, and it just relaxed me. And I, and I had a pretty decent rookie, rookie season that year. So let, let's talk the, the 2023-24 season coming up here. Um, let's let's look at Duquesne. You guys had three juniors, uh, Day-Day and Jimmy, who I mentioned earlier, Trey Williams. Are you expecting all of them to come back uh, for their senior years? And you also had five freshmen uh, on that roster. So, uh, you know, what can we expect from them moving forward as they, they hit their sophomore years? I think going to the freshmen first, I think we, we expect a lot of them. Now they're not they're not freshmen anymore. Um, two of the five got more minutes than 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 others, and and those two were a lot is expected of them. I mean, shout out to my Michigan guy Kareem Rozier. No one recruited that guy. I've known him since the eighth grade, and he came in and at a thirty three games he made that two or three battles. He was really solid all year. David Dixon just the Energizer Bunny, um, and now the under is going to understand the college game a little more. I expect really big things out of those guys. Um, Devin Carney was a red shirt, so, you know, we'll see what goes on with him once he understands, you know, the speed of the game and how to do it. But to Sharansky, um, his, his some struggles, and he ended up having to sit out the rest of the year. Um, but he's – I talked to him actually today, and he's he's raring to go in a little bar, a chop, big chobby. Man, I, I can't wait for people to see what he really can do. They got a taste of it before 
the unfortunate, you know, collapse of him, and they just couldn't play anymore the rest of the year. But those three juniors you got, we're expecting a lot of them. I mean, Jimmy Clark and Dede Grant especially, respecting all league seasons again from them. Um, even though Jimmy was led the, led the conference in steals, we expect even a better performance from him on defense. Dede, Dede just got to be Dede. And if he's himself like he was this year and improves a little bit more in the defensive end, he's going to be a phenomenal you know, player in this league. And and we feel like we're on some good recruits now to replace the guys that that, um, that we're losing with R.J. Gunn and Joe Reese and, and Austin Rotroff. And I hate to see those three go. I mean, I, I, I was here with Austin first got here. And uh, I almost cried when he cried over his last game. It's, that's one of my guys, man. I hate to see him go. But, you know, we got to replace those three, and it's the nature of our business. We just got to keep rolling. But I expect some good things from Duquesne. I don't expect backwards things. I think our nucleus is going to be back, and I expect, to, you know, our fans to – to come out and, and, and support us like they did at the end of the year and expect to see a good brand of basketball because we're not going anywhere. And if you want to support Duquesne, you can go to www.goduquesne, all one word, goduquesne.com. Uh, look for the Duquesne Athletic Fund, and you can donate there and support Duquesne Athletics and specifically the basketball team. I'm sure they're going to appreciate it. So uh, I want to thank Coach Charles Thomas for coming on. Charles, thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. I I love these kind of panel things, and we're just talking basketball. Like, well, what could be better than that? You know what I'm Absolutely. saying? Wednesday night. This is this is great for me. So I really appreciate it. 